everybody. Thanks for being with us. We want to thank Winding Trails Books, which is located in uh, Milton Square in St. Anthony Park. They are a neighborhood book and gift store, and you can buy the Lori and Julia Book Club books books in person at the store online at windingtrailbooks.com. All right. So our author today, Tom O'Neill, is joining us. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi there. How you doing? We are good. The name of your book is Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And, um, Tom, I like, I think I'm about the same age as you are. And I was, I remember that summer of 69 being a kid and the Manson murders. And then later when the Helter Skelter book came out, reading that whole book, and I have always felt for years, I knew the story of what happened with the murders and then you have to take the story from here with what happened and where we are with this book because it's pretty unbelievably fascinating yeah yeah well for people who aren't familiar with the book um the prosecution motive for why sharon tate who was the wife of the film director rose excuse me roman polanski and yet yeah, and the others were killed, was that Manson wanted to ignite a race war, pitting blacks against whites by making it look like Black Panthers had, had killed these people. In fact, um, I found out after, well, many, many two years of reporting mm-hmm. that there were different reasons uh, for the murders, different ways they occurred, and the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, actually um, covered up the truth about the case and the crimes and created a much more sensational motive in order to sell books and kind of get a ticket to fame. Uh, his book to this day, Helter Skelter, is the best-selling true crime book of all time, and my book is kind of the antidote to that that explains what not definitively happened, but right. I know what didn't happen and, and what everyone thinks they know about the case. And and one of the things that I... The book is called Chaos. Yeah, Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And it really, it is not, you know, I, I, I like how you are telling the story, the investigation that you did, all the people that you talked to 20 years. Uh, Dominic Dunn warned you, don't follow mm-hmm. this story you're going to fall down the rabbit hole because he covered that trial right. but i one of the takeaways that i've always because i read that book helter skelter a couple of times was that terry melcher doris day's son he was a record producer he met manson hung out at the with the at the abandoned movie ranch and promised charlie a deal a recording deal and when he reneged on it that he became afraid of Manson. He and Candace Bergen go to Europe and he rents the house to Roman Polanski and Terry Melcher was really who was supposed to be killed that night. And you say, ah, contraire, and you find out actual proof. Yeah, yeah, and with all due respect, I have to correct a little bit of that. Um, Yeah, Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen uh, rented the house as well uh, from 67 to 69, and when they moved out, uh, they broke their lease and left in the middle of the night, but they didn't rent it to Roman Polanski. Uh, The house was owned by someone else named Rudy Altabelli, and he rented it to Roman and Sharon, who only lived there a couple of months, uh, and then both, you know, from they were there February and March, and then both of them went to Europe to do separate film projects. Sharon returned the day before the moon landing, so 50 years ago, July 20th, I believe, and was just there, you know, about three more weeks before 
she was killed and she was heavily pregnant about eight, eight, eight and a half months. Um, but Terry Meltzer was the reason in Bugliosi's presentation that the House was chosen. Right. Not because he had promised uh, Manson a deal, but um, Manson, well, I guess you could say that. Bugliosi contends that Manson misinterpreted some signals from Meltzer, but I don't think Belcher promised him a deal or was ever interested in recording, and there was something else going on in their relationship. And what I uncovered was documentation showing that Melcher's relationship was just very different than he had said on the, he had testified about on the stand. And, and um, not only was it much more extensive and involved, but Bugliosi at the trial had Melcher say that he never saw Manson again after a final kind of, uh, he did audition the group at the Spawn Ranch, the movie ranch outside of Los Angeles in May of 1969. And he, he wasn't interested in recording them and was polite and left. And that was supposedly the last time he ever thought about Manson or saw him. Mm-hmm. But what I found was evidence in Bugliosi's own hand that uh, Melcher's relationship with Manson and the family extended beyond the murders and, and uh, that Melcher was visiting Manson after the murders in some very dramatic situations, uh, including Melcher at one point falling on his knees, according to a police report, and begging forgiveness uh, from Manson for something. Unfortunately, the police reports didn't detail why. And then after that, there was another visit Manson, Melcher made to Manson way out in Death Valley, which was a good six-hour drive from uh, Melcher's home at, at where he lived in Malibu at that point. So my book uh, basically kind of peels away the fake story, shows the true story about Melcher and Manson as much as I could prove, and then you see it's written in the first person. So I have these encounters with uh, Melcher and a bunch of other people from that Mm-hmm. rock and roll kind of Hollywood world of 69 with this evidence and you get to see how they react to it and then I later show Bugliosi the same stuff and his reaction was almost identical to Melcher's both of them said if I published what I found they would sue me and my publisher and they also threatened me personally um, unfortunately wow. both men aren't alive and, right. yeah yeah and unfortunately, yeah, both men aren't alive anymore, and I really wanted them to be alive, to be held to account, um, to answer to, to the questions that they didn't answer honestly with me. Um, but you do see what they did to try to stop the book and, and stop me, which is pretty dramatic reading as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, so, it, uh, the fact that Terry Melcher, you know, he kind of went, like, he, it's like he bought into the fiction of that story and that he had yeah. kept meeting with man, you know, afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he lived like kind of for the rest of his life, like he was kind of the terrorized person. I mean, maybe I, well, I he mean, was haunted, haunted, he was haunted by it. OK, he also had, had these secrets that he never shared. And, and he was really when I met him finally face to face in 2001 or 2000, he was like just a a shell of a man. I mean, he had all the money in the world and all mm-hmm. the success in the world, but he still was clearly living with this lie and was, you know, in bad shape emotionally, uh, psychologically, and died a few years after that. Um, and I think if he had just been honest about what he knew at the beginning, but I think if he had been honest, you know, the murders might not have happened when they happened. Right. Oh, it's if just so yeah. fascinating. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Tom O'Neill, um, one of the co-authors of the book Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And this project for you, Tom, all started out 
with you getting an assignment from a now defunct magazine premiere. And I love that magazine. I did too. <laughs> and and for twenty years, you've kind of you not kind of, but you've been obsessed, and you've you've gone from uh, one publisher to another. Is that not true? Yeah, it's true. I don't like to admit it, but sure. right, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to call it. I'm That's sorry. Okay. Your, sorry for calling yeah. you out on it. And the other interesting well, thing I don't that think I didn't I'm know glad about. that you were obsessed with it yeah. because I find it. Lori was obsessed. F- well, I think anyone who has read Helter Skelter mm-hmm. and Insult, got to be a lot of people. The fact that, you know, you have. This guy from Minnesota, Hibbing, Minnesota, Vincent Bugliosi, same age as Charles Manson, looking like the button-down man, and there's Charlie Man. I mean, it was such a fascinating point in like a, a before and after in our history, kind of in a in a weird way. And and for people, would you agree with broadcast? that? Yeah. Does your broadcast go out to Hibbing? Uh, anyone, anyone can, can listen hear it anywhere. Yeah. Oh, boy, because I know he has a lot of family there, and I'm already getting a lot of, Are uh, you? let's just say, hate hate mail from one person in his family. Uh, in that, you know, the interesting thing, though, too, that I don't know that of our, our listeners know, because I didn't know this before today, mm-hmm. Lori, is that Vincent Bugliosi was the prosecuting attorney on the murder case. Yeah. And, then, and then he wrote the book. Then he wrote the book. Helter Skelter. Yes. Not only that, he had his co-author in the courtroom with him from the first day of the trial, he was playing as much to his future readers as he was playing to the jury. I mean, he knew he needed to make the trial as sensational as possible. And he didn't have to work that hard because the Manson family was up to their own crazy yeah, yes. theatrics. Yeah, they were uh, showing Julio's. themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, one, you see that? go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say that, I mean, one of the things, the questions that you do come up in your search for what really was the motive, we know that these guys were the killers, but why was law enforcement so lax with Charles Manson, who was on parole and basically a a career con? You know, why? Yeah. that yeah. is a big question. I mean, that they had a raid at the ranch a week after the Manson murders. Everyone was released two days later, and then they get rearrested. Three, I mean, you really do uncover some. Okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, yeah, that's why it took so long. <laughs> For instance, just to get Manson's federal parole file it took about two years of Freedom of Information Act requests to the you know U.S. Probation and Parole Office, and they released documents to me very, very slowly, always redacted. I'd have to appeal to get more information. I still don't have the whole file. I have about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters, and a lot of it's redacted, but there's enough in there to see that Manson was arrested many, many more times and had been reported, released many more times, and he had a parole officer who was basically uh, knowledgeable of what he was doing and, and had actually become foster parent to one of Manson's children for about three or four months in 68. And beyond that, even when two of the women were in, in jail awaiting sentencing in a, in a case a year before the murders, this same parole officers uh, went to the sentencing the probation sentencing officer who decides whether or not to recommend mm-hmm. the women be sent to prison or, or be given probation. And he recommend, and Roger Smith identified himself as a parole officer with experience. And he said, I know both these women, they're good women. They just got led astray, but they'll be fine. Let them out. But oh, what he huh. didn't tell them was that he had been a parole officer 
for the man that led their criminal circle and, and, and it introduced them to the life of crime. And both those women ended up killing for Manson less than a year later, less than eight months later. They were released in, um, I think it was about a year later. So they were released in September 68. And Susan Atkins famously, you know, according to her version, stabbed Sharon Tate to death while Sharon Tate begged for the life of her baby to be spared. And both Susan Atkins and Mary Bruner, who Manson's parole officer had also recommended for, for probation instead of prison, they both killed a musician named Gary Hinman. Uh, by smothering him to death while he he had already been shot and stabbed by a third member, Bobby Beausoleil. So these women weren't good women. No, it right. doesn't sound uh, like and, it. And yet, we have to we have yeah. to stop you. We got to take a quick break. We're talking with Tom okay. O'Neill. His new book uh, is out. It's been a twenty year journey for him. Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA. The secret history of the '60s. When we come back, we want to talk. I mean, you really well, I want to ask trial and tribulations. We want to talk about your encounter with Tom Cruise, of course. At the we've end, been but obsessed. I, I also want to. It's interesting to me that all this stuff with uh, Manson being the lax parole. I mean, anyone who's read a detective book, you're like, oh, he's an informant. You know, he's a CI. Uh, yeah. Yep. So we got to yep. talk about yep. what you discovered about that. Uh, uh, sure thing. Possibility. We'll be right back. Read. Thanks for hanging out with us. If you read the book Helter Skelter, the most popular true crime book ever, and you think you know everything that happened with the Manson murders, uh, you're going to want to take a look and pick up this book, Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. We're talking to Tom O'Neill, longtime journalist and entertainment reporter. And Tom, when we left off with you, we were just talking about why was law enforcement so lack with lax with Charles Manson and kind of going to bat for, you know, the two women who ended up murdering Sharon Tate and being involved with the murders a year later. Was he, did you find evidence that he was a confidential informant? Well, as crazy as that sounds, I did. And I don't like to reach that conclusion myself. Okay. I, when you get, if you see the book, you'll see I had other law enforcement people look at his record of catch and release, uh, and in particular, one who was the head DA of Van Nuys during the, the same period Manson was out there committing the crime. Mm-hmm. He was retired. I brought all of these documents to him, and he said, you know, sometimes this can be blamed on incompetence or bureaucratic mix-up, but he said after looking at page after page after page of stuff I'd gotten from the federal parole office, he said, this is, I mean, he was pretty upset. He goes, he, this was definitely someone wanted him outside instead of inside because he was more valuable to them. And I said, so you're saying an informant? He said, I'm saying he was sharing information Mm -hmm. at a minimum and they were allowing him to remain at large. And he said, you've got to find out who he was working for. And I said, well, who could that be? And he said, well, it could have been a federal agency. It could have been state, local, you know, sheriffs, LAPD, FBI. And you see in the book that I I write about a few programs that were in existence in 1969 uh, operated by the federal government to actually infiltrate hippie groups and uh, try to provoke them to commit crimes against, uh, well, in this case, mostly Black Panthers and Mm -hmm. Black militants. 
including committing crimes that would uh, result in murder. And all this stuff came out. This program was called COINTELPRO, and the CIA program was called CHAOS. This came out in the mid-'70s. There are congressional hearings into it. There's a lot of information out there on the program. So wow. I know it sounds crazy. Yeah, but it's, it's like, so but fascinating. This it, book is so fascinating. You know, it, and for people who are just joining us, Tom, um, this started out as a magazine assignment. and turned, On the 30-year anniversary, how did yeah. Hollywood... sounds like the Quentin Tarantino movie, you know, like taking a look back at Hollywood and how it changed. Was that sort of... I mean, you had a big parameter for premiere that magazine assignment but is that was that sort of the premise like did it change hollywood how did it start yeah yeah actually ironically my original assignment was they just said write about the 30th anniversary and i said write why you know everything's been written about this, <laughs> right? case. this is 1999 and my editor who i'd worked with before said you'll find an angle she said just begin with how it changed hollywood like the impact on the community of people who lived, you know, and were friends with the victims. And kind of that is what Tarantino ended up making his movie about, mm-hmm. you know, what he calls the loss of innocence and the changing mores of of Hollywood of that community. Uh, he got the book about a month ago with a mutual friend, and she, she said, I'll give him the book, but I have to read it first, because obviously anybody that's close to, to, to Tarantino gets approached by everybody in the world. Oh, oh absolutely, sure. So oh, she said, as long as I, as, as long as I think he'll, he'll want to read it, I'll give it to him. And she said, I couldn't put it down. Oh my gosh. I, I feel the same way. And... <laughs> yes. I'm still waiting to hear what he thought. I have a feeling he's a little too busy right now. Yeah, to read he it might be, me. but, um, okay. Yeah. So another thing, Tom, you talk about in your book chaos about the relationship with Charles Manson and the beach boys. Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, well, it wasn't really the Beach Boys so much as one Beach Boy, Dennis Wilson, who was the drummer, and he was famously kind of like the really only authentic surfer dude mm-hmm. in the group. Uh, you know, he was the best-looking guy, yeah, the wildest was. guy, and he had an encounter with the, the two of the, the women, and um, when Manson found out where he lived and that he had let the women into his house, he kind of turned up there with the whole group and the bus. And Wilson came home from recording uh, an album with with the band and found the Manson family settled in his house and in the middle of a you know an LSD fueled orgy, which he was not upset about. He joined in and <laughs> they stayed there about three months. And during that period, Manson kind of infiltrated Hollywood, you know, and got a lot of uh, made a lot of friends in the music industry. A lot a lot of people I tried to talk to wouldn't talk to me about it. Neil Young famously. Didn't tell me, but he told another journalist, I think Rolling Stone in the early 70s, that Manson had much deeper ties with the music industry in Hollywood. And a lot of people knew who, him and actually liked him who would never admit it. Wow. Okay, well, cause, you know, so that's yeah. why a lot of those people said no to interviews with you. A lot right, of music people. Right, right. And, they're, and his yeah. entree well, was... And actors. Okay, and actors. All right, oh, so gosh. this is... the. We got one copy of the book, so Lori's got I'm it. I'm hogging it She's right hogging now. it, so I'm looking at <laughs> 17,000 sheets of paper that to highlight, Tom, but I get it after her. But here's my question for you, because I know this is off the beaten track, but we've been obsessed with Scientology. We've been on the air. We started our 18th year. And yeah. it's been our thread, and I saw you worked it a little while at the Village Voice, and you worked for us, and and there's a little bit about. Can you tell us about your encounter with your Tom shouting Cruise match with Tom Cruise about, about Scientology? Scientology? 
Is that in my book, or did you see that in my clip? No, no, that's in, in your, your book. book. You write about that to, to say, <laughs> we, we to, show, only... to show the twists and turns that you've had, like, in covering Hollywood. You've had some strange encounters. Yeah, we got to yeah, hear that. Yeah. Well, they gave me all the uh, the tough guys, the, the guys that were difficult to interview when I worked in entertainment because I knew I wouldn't back down. Mm-hmm. And I think Tom Cruise was actually my first cover story, and I can't remember what year it was, but he was promoting A Few Good Men. And I knew him. We actually worked together before I was a journalist. Actually, I was telling you a booker. I, I went to McAllister College yes. uh, for two years. We love yeah, it. And I, I love McAllister, but I transferred to NYU because I wanted to be a, a screenwriter and playwright. And uh, after NYU, I worked in, in the film business and production and worked on Tom Cruise's first big movie, a movie called Tap. That was yes, yes we know hometown. that. So I knew him personally. Uh, I mean, not personally, but I met him on that film. And when I did a cover story on him, it was about 10 years later or 15 years later when he was the number one movie, American mm-hmm. male movie star in the world and got off on a great foot because of our past history and right. appreciation of that. But I wasn't going to let him not talk about Scientology. And he'll talk about it. He'll talk your ear off, but he doesn't want on record, asking the hard questions. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was asking him about his claim that Scientology could, had cured him of dyslexia. Right. And that was hotly contested by academics and, and medical professionals. And that's where it got very, very heated. And, um, yeah, it was the interview kind of went south after that. But, you know, you got to ask people tough questions. Yeah. So maybe that was good. I, Tom, I'm ready for you to do the Tom Cruise book and because, oh my gosh, I bet that is a story. Anyway, your We're book, so- Chaos, Charles Manson, the CA, and the Secret History of the 60s is fantastic. And if you read Helter Skelter, you. you got to read this book. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you guys. Yeah, yeah. Tom O'Neill. I, I want to hear your show when it airs. I, I mean, I know it airs now, but I'd love to hear a tape of it or something. You can, well, you, you can, can read, you can Lori do it on Julia. demand. 